Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. By taking heed thereto according to thy word, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then we will we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to spend time in your word, to reflect upon the accuracy of your word and the prophecies that are within your word, that these are just among many other facets of your word that demonstrate that it is not a human a book of human origin, but a book of divine origin. Father, we pray that as we study these things, that even though the prophecies we're studying were fulfilled in the past, nevertheless, they are a type of things that will come in the future, and they are also picture patterns that continue throughout uh, much of human history. Father, we pray that as we study that it will be used by God the Holy Spirit to develop wisdom in our souls, that we may use that wisdom as we apply it in decision-making processes in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And it has been three weeks since we were together, and we are actually studying the doctrine of the Antichrist, developing it, uh, developing it inductively from pa- key passages in the Scripture that talk about the uh, talk about the Antichrist. We've looked at Daniel chapter seven, and now we are in uh, Daniel uh, chapter uh, Daniel chapter eight. We have come here from our passage in Revelation 13, 1 and 2, which introduces the beast coming out of the sea, the beast that has ten horns and seven heads, representing the final form of the kingdom of man, the final form of uh, these several kingdoms that are identified out of the vision in Daniel chapter 7. And it is in this final form that it is led by the beast known as the, or the person known as the Antichrist, who is also referred to as the, as the first beast. And he um, personifies characteristics that were seen in these previous uh, kingdoms that were identified in the vision of, that Daniel had in Daniel 7, where he saw the um, uh, lopsided bear, the leopard with the four heads, four wings representing Greece, the bear representing the kingdom of Persia, the mouth like the mouth of a lion, which was Babylon, and uh, then the dragon, meaning Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great uh, great authority. So we're going back into the Old Testament where the image, all of this imagery is developed, and we've seen it already in Daniel 7, and now we're in Daniel 8. Now in Daniel 7, as I pointed out last time, there is an image or there's a picture of the little horn 
in Daniel 7, and there's also a little horn in Daniel 8. But don't confuse them. The little horn in Daniel uh, 7 is the Antichrist. And he arises from the midst of these ten horns that represent the final form of the kingdom of man, the ten-nation uh, confederacy that the Antichrist dominates at the end of the, or at the, during, at the end of time during the tribulation period. The ten horns are there, then this little horn comes up, so he's actually an eleventh king, and he will then take control or dominate, he, he cuts off, rips out, uh, three of the horns indicating that there's some form of conquest from the eleventh horn over three of the ten, and then from that vantage point he takes over and dominates that ten-nation uh, confederacy as an eleventh king. Whereas in chapter 8, the vision is of a ram and a goat. The vision is of the uh, 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 goat that represents, I, I believe, the, uh, at the beginning you have the, uh, the ram representing uh, the kingdom of Persia. And then you have the goat that comes along and uh, defeats the ram, and the goat that comes along is the kingdom of uh, the kingdom of Greece. Last time I put these slides up here on the uh, overhead. I adapted these from a set of slides that appeared in the current issue of Israel, My Glory. Had a great series of articles on Daniel and on the Antichrist, and so I thought it would, uh, uh, they did a good job, and I adapted, changed a few things, but it's the contrast between the little horn of Daniel 7 and the little horn of Daniel 8. And the important thing to realize is that the little horn of Daniel 8 is Antiochus Epiphanes all the way through the chapter. There's not a shift that occurs. Now, we're going to look at Daniel 11 next, and in Daniel 11, the first uh, 34 verses of Daniel 11 focus on the same history that we're going to talk about tonight with reference to the Ptolemaic Empire and the Ptolemaic Kingdom, rather, and the Seleucid Kingdom. But starting in about verse 35 of Daniel 11, it's a shift into the future, and the remainder of that chapter it focuses on the Antichrist. But what happens in Daniel 8 is there's no shift that takes place, even though, and I'll point it out when we get there, there's a couple of phrases that at first glance uh, seem to indicate that. So we have this contrast between the little horn of Daniel 7, who is the Antichrist, and the little horn of Daniel 8, who is Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes up. Uh, out of one of the four horns, there's one lar- large horn uh, on the goat. That large horn represents the uh, represents a- uh, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great dies. That's, we'll go. We'll review that uh, quickly. Alexander the Great dies. That horn is broken off, replaced by four horns, and then there is a little horn that grows out of one of those four horns, and that is really important. One reason that it's important is that uh, as we live in our current times, in our current uh, world, our international uh, political situation with the rise of radical uh, Islam, there have been a number of people, and a number, several of these are out of a uh, Muslim background, 
And so they come out of the Middle East, and they have a tendency to interpret uh, a lot of things that they read in the Scripture from their immediate frame of reference without doing without due diligence in word studies and uh, theological studies. And the result of that is that there's becoming more and more um, visibility given to a position that the Antichrist really comes out of Assyria, out of the old Assyria, which would be modern Syria, that area, and that the Antichrist is Islamic. And I'll, as we go through some of this, I'm going to point out various reasons why uh, I do not believe that is true. But one of them is that um, one of the reasons is that the little horn of Daniel 8 uh, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, is a type or a picture of the uh, future Antichrist. And he's, Antiochus Epiphanes is not Assyrian. He's not uh, Arab. He's Greek. And as the uh, empire, thanks, Lisa, as the empire, now I know what I'm going to talk about, uh, as the, and I have blue ink, is that right? Well, didn't we have fun tonight? Um, as the uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, as this de- position has developed, it focuses on uh, Syria, saying, "Okay, this is where uh, Assyria in the ancient world was located," and so they try to make a connection there. But as we'll see tonight, Antiochus Epiphanes was Greek by heritage when alexander died and the empire was broken up divided among his four generals uh, each of those generals took over different different uh, areas uh, t- the ptolemy took over egypt and his descendants were all greeks all the way down to the last one who was cleopatra the cleopatra of uh, that elizabeth taylor made famous so uh, but she was not egyptian and every now and then in multicultural, liberal multicultural studies in uh, uh, universities today, they'll try to make out that, uh, that this is the um, picture of the uh, uh, African nations and African people and how great they were. But she wasn't African. She was Greek in the same way that Antiochus wasn't Syrian He was or Arab. He was a Greek. Not only was he a Greek, but because of the political scenario of the day, he was raised, he was reared and educated in Rome. So he was trained to think like a Roman, and then on his way back to take power after his uh, brother was assassinated, he spent a lot of time in Greece, and he absorbed Greek ideas. So there's one kingdom, Rome, another kingdom, Greece, and he absorbs those ideas and comes back to implement uh, things that he's learned in those places as he takes over the uh, the, the Seleucid uh, kingdom. So just briefly, in terms of um, our review, the little horn of Daniel 7 arises uh, from the fourth kingdom, which is Rome, whereas the little horn of Daniel 8 arises from the second of the two kingdoms in Daniel 7, which is Greece, so different origin there. The eleventh horn, the little horn in Daniel is actually the eleventh horn, which rips out the other three. The little horn in Daniel 8 is actually a fifth horn that comes out of one of the four earlier horns. The little horn of Daniel 7 will persecute Israel for three and a half years, whereas the little horn of Daniel 8 will will persecute Israel for 2,300 days. And so we have to keep in mind that these are 
uh, very different uh, scenarios. Now, tonight, uh, I want to pick up where we stopped the last time, which is in uh, Daniel uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 8. But we'll back up to about verse 6 just to pick up the context. And before we do that, I want to put a slide up on the overhead, which is a, a map of the Middle East today. I want to draw some parallels. I want you to see where things are happening today in comparison to where they were in the ancient world. And so the center of the map basically are just a little bit uh, north of center is is Turkey. And this was ancient in the ancient world that was Anatolia. It was the Greek word for east because you're writ, you're right they were writing from a Greek perspective and so the sun rose in the east. The Greek word for the east was Anatolia and so that became the name for uh, that that area. Troy was located uh, during the Homeric times in the Battle of Troy, which has been made uh, famous again by recent movie, uh, was up in this area of uh, not too far from the Dardanelles and uh, this area of Turkey, and the Greeks came over from Achaia, crossed, uh, across, came across the Aegean uh, to do battle. And this was, Turkey was traditionally under the uh, dominance of the Persian Empire. Uh, Greece was in Europe, and so this is a battle between the uh, east and west. It's a battle between the Persians, and it's a battle between the uh, Japhethites and uh, and the Hamites. Basically, going back to uh, Genesis chapter 11. So you have uh, the who's going to dominate Europe or Asia, and it is a, with the transfer. I mean, with the defeat of Persia by the Greeks, you see the dominance, uh, the ascent, uh, ascending dominance of, of the Greeks. So this is the area of Turkey. This is modern Syria, which, of course, is artificial in its boundaries. It was uh, uh, set up by the, those boundaries were set up during the Sykes-Picot Treaty in about 1916 during World War I, the French and the British sat down and carved up their possessions in the Middle East. And so they, all these boundaries that you have are artificial because all of this territory that is now Syria, Lebanon, uh, Turkey, Jordan, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, all the way over to, to uh, Persia and Iran, all of these areas were part of the old uh, Ottoman Empire, and none of those nations existed, had any history until the end of World War One. None of those boundaries existed until the end of World War One, and they were just uh, artificially uh, established. Uh, and there's some interesting stories there, uh, how that happened that we cover some other time. But basically, they are the product of French and British colonialism at the end of World War One. Uh, Syria, ancient Syria, actually went all the way up into the eastern part of Turkey, which is the area of Kurdistan. And it is this area in eastern Turkey, the southern part of eastern Turkey, where the Kurds uh, still live, also down in the northern part of Iraq, down to Mosul. This is the area of, of the Kurds. Much of this area was part of uh, Syria during 
New Testament times and part of uh, more recent Old Testament times, but much of that area was part of the old Assyrian Empire. There's a difference between Assyria and Syria, and I'm still trying to do some etymological studies to figure out what the exact connection is between Syria and Assyria. There are still many ethnic people. There is still a large ethnic group in Iraq that are known as Assyrians. There are many Assyrians uh, still in that part of the world, and the Assyrian church was one of the earliest converts to Christianity, and one of the places that we've gone a few times when we've been in, in Jerusalem is to eat at an Assyrian restaurant down in the Assyrian quarter in, uh, in Old Jerusalem. But this is the area where everything's going to center in the at the end times, but it is also the area that is at the center of these prophecies in Daniel uh, Daniel 8. Now, this map, we shift back to the ancient world. Up here is the Black Sea. Below, we have modern Turkey, which is ancient Anatolia. Down here, we have the ancient area of uh, Syria. Over here in modern Iraq was Media. Down here, you get into Persia. And uh, the Persian area down, the Persians were came up from more of the southern area, whereas the Medes were in the northern area of what is still today, what is today Iran or Persia, also sort of overlapping into the area that became uh, Iraq. So this is the Persian Empire. Notice that it's at its greatest extent, it did enter into Europe, but it was never truly able to conquer uh, the Greeks. And because of what happened at Marathon, because of what happened with uh, Artaxerxes and down later at Thermopylae, uh, th- there was a tremendous amount of anger and hatred and hostility on the part of the Greeks and a tremendous desire for revenge against the Persians, which is what fed Alexander and why when he set out to conquer, he set out to conquer and defeat the Persians, it was an act of retribution for all of uh, the, their uh, deprivations on, on, uh, on the Greeks at an earlier time. So this gives us a depiction of that particular area of the Persian Empire. And so in Daniel 8.5 we read, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming uh, from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn, uh, between his eyes. And then in verse 21, we're told that the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. The, in Daniel 8, you, you read the first half, tells you the vision. Then the second half, starting in verse 15, the, uh, Gabriel gives the interpretation of the vision. So I'm just going to go back and forth between the uh, front part and the back part so we see the uh, uh, interpretation with it. So the a shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Uh, the Lord, large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, remember, when Daniel is writing this, this is all future. Daniel is writing in about um, uh, 540, 538 B.C., right in that area, maybe as late as 535. The Greeks aren't going to come on the scene. Alexander is not going to come on the scene until about 330 B.C. for almost 200 years. And so this is clearly written as, as predictive uh, prophecy. 
And we see in uh, Daniel 8, 6, and he came up to the ram. Now, rams are usually thought to be stronger and more powerful than goats, yet you have this male goat who is going to take out the ram. It's interesting within the uh, ancient world and the uh, symbolism that they had in the ancient world for different um, uh, different nations that the Persian Empire was represented by a ram, and that the um, uh, the Persian king often went into battle uh, with a ram's head in front of him, and a ram's head was often uh, pictured on their uh, on their shields, and the goat uh, that comes up is also. A picture of uh, was used as a picture of Greece. Both of these animals are used in astrology, which dominated the thinking of, of course, the the Persians and the Greeks as well. The uh, ram is one of the signs of Aries, the uh, war god, and the goat is the sign of uh, of Capricorn. And so, in the vision that Daniel has, you notice how God uses symbols that uh, were known to people at that time and symbols that they would relate to. So it's not a lot of guesswork as to who the ram is and who the uh, who the goat is. Just like today, if you talk about an eagle versus a bear, you think of the Russian bear and the American, uh, American eagle. So these symbols were common at that time, so people could understand what was uh, what was going on. Daniel 8, 6, we see he came up to the ram that had the two horns. That's Persia and the Median Persian Empire, uh, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, rushed at him in his mighty wrath. Verse 7, and I saw him come beside the ram. He was enraged at him. That is the vindictiveness, uh, the revenge motivation that Alexander had to uh, get revenge on the Persians. He's enraged at him, struck the ram, shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. And there were basically three major battles that where the Greeks uh, resoundly defeated the Persians uh, on the battlefield. So uh, he, that is the, the Greeks, the, um, the goat hurled him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from, from his power. Then we come to verse 8. Verse 8 is about where I stopped the last time. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. Arrogance is typical of human political power. It's not something new to the 21st century. This is one of the great dangers of anyone in leadership, of course, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a a teacher, a military commander, or whether you are a political leader, it is very easy to succumb to arrogance, thinking that you are the greatest. But when you are of the caliber of someone like Alexander the Great, it is a particularly a treacherous uh, sin and mental attitude to have, and this typified uh, Alexander because of his tremendous skill on the battlefield in conquering so many uh, so many nations. The male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, and it did not take long for Alexander to conquer the world, took five years, and when he was uh, 32 years of age, after a drunken party, uh, he became sick, and soon, uh, very soon after that, 
uh, he died. And he died in 323 uh, when he was 32 years of age. And the empire could not, there was no one strong enough to keep the uh, empire unified, and so it was then split between four of his generals. And that's the second part of the verse. Uh, The horn was broken with the death of Alexander, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns. These are the four heads of the leopard that we saw in uh, Daniel chapter 7. The speed of the uh, of the male goat going across the earth is typified in the speed of the leopard in Daniel chapter 7. So all these things fit together. And uh, these four conspicuous horns then toward the four winds of heaven, indicating a split, a division in four directions. Now, the four, uh, these four generals were Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Lysimachus. Now, as far as the biblical account goes, the, the third and the fourth don't relate at all. Cassander uh, initially took over Macedonia and Greece, Lysimachus, Thrace, and Turkey, and before long those um, those combined, the Thrace, Macedonia, and Greece combined, Turkey became part of the Seleucid Empire uh, within about a century. The uh, biblical text focuses on what happens to the to Egypt and the Ptolemaic Empire and the Seleucid Empire. Now this is history that <clears throat> this is history we're not very familiar with. You didn't get this in fifth grade because it was more important for you to be studying Texas history in fifth grade, and I think that was a good decision. And um, but you need to have some good world history to understand the dynamics of what goes on because there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. And these power struggles that were taking place in the ancient world are no different from the power struggles that are taking place today. There were different uh, natural resources that were at stake then. They weren't fighting over over oil and some of the other things that they're fighting over today, but there were ju- other resources that were just as important in the ancient world. And one of those had to do with just gold and it had to do with um, with money, as we'll see uh, in our study this evening. So you have this struggle between Ptolemy, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and that's the empire uh, that we need to focus on. Now, in verse 21, we're told, in terms of the interpretation, that the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large, ho- large horn that's between his eyes is the first king. That would be Alexander the Great. Then in verse 22, the broken horn... And the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. They weren't as strong. Now, remember, this is all stated 200 years in advance. And then in verse 23, we read, And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Now, when we read the word latter period of their rule, and we read the phrase when transgressors have run their course, there is a tendency to just sort of leap to a conclusion that this now shifts to future unfulfilled prophecy. If you just the term latter period sounds like last days or New Testament version would be uh, the latter days. And then if you look at the uh, 
at the next chapter in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, where we have the well-known 70-week prophecy. It begins with the statement, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression. We'll see that sounds like the phrase when the transgressors have run their course, but they're really two different concepts. One is talking about bringing an end to transgression, which is seen in the parallels in verse 24, to make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. So the context there is something that's very different. That's referring to end times, a second coming uh, scenario compared to this passage, which is talking about when the transgressors, and who are the transgressors? These are the ones that are ruling, in that first phrase, in the latter period of their rule. The, their rule has to go back to the, uh, the kings, the four kings that arise, the four kingdoms that arise out of the broken horn. So that locks us down to the fact that 823 is still talking about a historical event. It was future to Daniel, but it is past to us. This occurred in the end of the 3rd century B.C., going up to events in the middle of the 2nd century uh, B.C., from or actually the end of the 4th century B.C. into the... Um, middle of the 2nd century B.C., from 323, the time of Alexander's death, to 198 B.C., that period the Ptolemies, the kingdom of Egypt, dominated Jerusalem and Judea and that part of the world. So when we read that in the latter period of their rule, it's talking about the fact that that the... Um, this insolent king comes up towards the end of this period of time. The first period of time from 323 to 198 is a period of uh, 124 years, whereas the period when the Seleucid Empire dominated Jerusalem is a period from 198 to 167 B.C. Just We're just talking about a period of 30 years. So this was clearly in the latter period when of the uh, domination uh, by the Greek uh, successors to Alexander. In 167, there's the what is known as the uh, Maccabean Revolt and the beginning of the uh, Hasmonean Kingdom, which we'll probably not get into until next week. The trouble with getting into a lot of understanding in Daniel chapter 8 is if you don't understand the ancient history, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's easy to become misled with various uh, newspaper exegesis type of uh, of a prophecy mongering today, which is uh, plays on our fears with radical Islam, and that hap- has happened in almost every uh, generation of the church. You go back to the Middle Ages, and they were uh, fearful of the uh, Mongolians, and those were the uh, they would attach prophecy to the coming of the Mongols, and then later on you come to uh, the period in um, uh, the early part of the 19th century, and it was. Uh, 
the the big enemy was Napoleon. And then you get later on with the rise of Germany and it's Bismarck. Later on, it's Hitler. Later on, it's uh, somebody else all the way up to the present. And so we have to have an understanding of what happened historically so that we can see how these verses and why these verses can't be referring to a, an Assyrian Antichrist or to an Antichrist who rises out of this four nation or four empire, four kingdom split in the Greek, uh, Greek, uh, in, in, from the Greek empire. Okay, so the, the fits with the Seleucid period in the early part of the uh, second century BC. Now, I simplified this. When I taught Daniel many years ago, I didn't. I've simplified this a little bit so you don't get overwhelmed with names because they're very repetitious. You get, you know, a father's name is Antiochus, so he names one son Antiochus, whatever, and another one's name Seleucus. And and you just get confused with all the names and all the numbers because they're all the same. So I'm just going to focus on the key ones that play a role in both Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. So you see, we the Bible uses a lot of repetition. You get a little bit of it in Daniel 8, and then you're going to get more details about these same people and these same kingdoms when we get into uh, Daniel 11. But since I'm covering this uh, a little more rapidly, uh, we won't have to spend a lot of time uh, on review. So you have four major players, actually three. The last one, Antiochus V, is basically irrelevant for our study. We're talking about Antiochus III, who is known as Antiochus the Great. Uh, his son was Seleucus IV, known as Philopater, and he was assassinated. And so his brother, Antiochus IV, known as Epiphanes, meaning um, uh, magnificent deity or the illustrious one. It was a, a title, the manifest deity that he, so he has this title that he assumes, uh, in, indicating that he's taking on, uh, divinity for himself. And, um, he is the arch villain. He is the one that God the Holy Spirit takes of all the rulers in history. And we can think of some pretty horrible, uh, individuals in just our own time from, uh, Saddam Hussein, all the way back to Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, any number of others that we might pick to be uh, really good pictures of someone as evil as the Antichrist. But the person that the Holy Spirit picks is Antiochus IV. And in the ancient world, Antiochus IV really didn't always make the front page. He was mostly buried somewhere in the first section. He's not that major a player. I mean, the, the, all the news reporters are really over in Rome during this time uh, reporting on the uh, wars between the Romans and the Carthaginians. They're, I mean, this is just second-rate stuff, what's going on over in Syria with Antiochus Epiphanes. It's, it's, it's you know, back, back of the first section kind of stuff, if it even makes the, uh, even makes the, uh, uh, the report. Most of the time he didn't make the evening news. He might make uh, some uh, asterisk somewhere. But this is the one that the Holy Spirit is going to focus on because there were certain character qualities and certain aspects of what he did and how he did it that in combination picture and portray the Antichrist more so than any other 
human figure. Now, there are many other human figures that we could think of that portray different aspects of the Antichrist character, but he had more of them and did other things that uh, made him the prime choice. So these are the uh, main three we'll look at. Antiochus the Great, he's from 223 to 187. So he goes through the um, through the century shift, and he is uh, basically in power for um, about 36 years. And then he is going to be replaced uh, by uh, his son, Seleucus, who's really a minor player. He's up there for about uh, 12 years before he is um, assassinated. And then they have to bring in Antiochus. Antiochus during this time has been in Rome. We'll get into that in a minute. And he is uh, now he has to be brought back to take over uh, to take over the empire. Now, as we get into this, I want to introduce him before we get into some of the details. And I want to so that you can think about uh, three things that are brought out in the person of Antiochus the uh, Antiochus the fourth that are uh, picture, pictures for us of the kind of person uh, the end-time Antichrist will be. First of all, it has to do with personality. He was a very, had a very attractive personality. He was very popular at the beginning. He had military victories, which added to his popularity. And so at the very beginning, he won the masses. And this is one of the ways that politicians and leaders typically endear themselves to the masses. They make promises. They promise uh, prosperity, that there's going to be a chicken in every pot and two cars in every garage and everybody will have cable TV and a wireless Internet connection. And that now they're going to have health care, uh, cradle-to-grave uh, care for everything. And these are the things that politicians of all stripes promise people because they basically understand the fact that that's what the masses want. They don't want to think. Uh, they just want to make sure that they have... Uh, they have comfort. So many leaders gain power through their personalities and through their own uh, charisma. I understand from uh, a college history professor whose uh, area of expertise was in European totalitarianism at the end of the 19th century and 20th century, and he spoke German fluently, and he would tell us that to listen to Hitler was almost hypnotic. He just had a way of speaking to people that would just, uh, they would almost go into a trance. And it, it was like he was leading a huge uh, pep rally. And, of course, people, I think, want to believe that things are going to get better. Most people want to uh, believe in some sort of uh, optimistic future. And so somebody comes along and tells them that they can have all of that without a whole lot of effort then they're willing to buy into that. And so Adolf Hitler was a classic example in the 20th century of that. We can also think of several uh, presidents that we've had and other politicians, not just presidents, but we can think of senators and uh, congressmen in different areas that have had the same kind of demagogic personality that have been able to come along and they promise all kinds of things with no details and people just flock to them uh, without thinking. Uh, 
And I think part of this is because in the U.S. and in Western civilization as a whole, we've been really prepared and set up for this kind of thing in a unique way historically because of what has happened with technology in the 20th century. And when you combine that with what has happened uh, uh philosophically with a shift into existentialism, which is basically a blind leap for meaning in life, even though their basic uh, assumptions, presuppositions, and their basic views that there's really no God, there's no meaning in life, no one can live that way, so they have to uh, leap into some sort of irrational meaning in order to justify their existence. Otherwise, they have to live as if there's just no hope. Everything's uh, going to collapse and be destroyed, and, and they can't live with the Nietzschean nihilism, so they have to go with some sort of uh, optimism that is fed by something that is irrational. And so when you combine the philosophical shift that occurred at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century with the rise of print media, advertising techniques, television, the unique way in which music is used in film, music is used in television, music is used in commercials to uh, promote and to sell things, we are programmed in more ways than we think to respond like a, a Pavlovian dog almost, that when we hear certain kinds of music, uh, then it produces a certain kind of mindset. If you were to take the uh, music track from an old Western and then put that in with uh, a modern uh, modern film of uh, ro- romance or romantic comedy or something, you would just really feel very uh, disjointed and confused because the mood that you've been programmed to associate with that music and what you've been uh, used to seeing in front of you would be completely different and it would be very jarring. So people are, have, you know, there have been numerous studies done by advertising agencies, many other people to craft just the right kind of jingle to get you to buy that toothpaste and just the right kind of image. Sex sells everything. And just to put that right kind of image, you know, have you ever noticed that most, you, you just can't get anywhere in the news media if you're not a female blonde. Just doesn't work, especially if you're going to work for Fox News. So all conservatives have to be blonde, conservative women, I guess. But we get used to these images, and we respond to images and not to content. Of course, a classic example is what happened in the, I think it was in 1960s, in the debate between uh, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy in the presidential debate, when Nixon came out, black and white TV, and his makeup wasn't done right, and he had a five, heavy five o'clock shadow, and so he didn't he didn't look uh, alert and vibrant. Now he looked domineering and dark, and and then you had this young, vibrant uh, John F. Kennedy, and so people responded to that image rather than the content. And so we've got a culture that's designed to react and respond to sound bites, to respond to music, to respond to visual images, and that's what we see on the news. We see the president taking his little photo ops here and there, and Jan, that's all we see on television, and, and maybe this might have some impact from YouTube and other things where you can actually see more 
of what is going on, but then how many people actually look at those things and and get the whole context of certain uh, uh, of certain clips. Well, I don't know. Anyway, my point is that through the combination of philosophical shifts, the emphasis on image, style versus substance, uh, pictures, uh, emoting, things that evoke certain positive feelings rather than uh, rational, uh, rational content, um, has in combination with an education system that has dumbed down the American populace so that people aren't taught how to think critically, how to evaluate positions. If you get a president who would stand up and actually go through the details of the health care bills that they never read, uh, then people would be asleep in 5.7 seconds, and people would be bored to death. Nobody's going to listen to them. So they come out with uh, their their magic act, and they dance around a little bit and do a tap dance over all the facts, and then they present something in terms of its end result that everybody's going to have health care. This solves the health care problem, or this solves the global warming problem, or this will solve the economic problem. Presto, change, oh, everybody's going to be happy. And people just... Uh, fall into that. Many people do. It's, it's amazing how that is happening. It's been going on for at least a hundred years. So sadly, we have those things going on. Plus, we have different ethnic groups in the United States that have had their critical thinking skills cut short by organizations that claim to uh, have their best interests at heart, but in fact are promoting their own power agendas. Uh, the Hispanics have La Raza, the blacks have the NAACP, and what most people don't realize, either Hispanics or are blacks is that the NAACP was founded by Marxists and the whole philosophy and agenda of the NAACP is pure Marxist Leninism. And so is uh, La Raza and, and the uh, various philosophies that come uh, that are promoted to popularize uh, different things among the Hispanics. I remember uh, several years ago uh, I was at a... Um, one of the first times I was involved with WHW Ministries, which is a ministry to black pastors, and I was teaching at a at a black church at South Central L.A. And at that particular night, the uh, one of the pa- pastors in the area was asked to uh, come up and take up the collection. Now, this is one of the few pastors that I've run into uh, that was really bright and insightful in terms of his understanding of what was what the realities were in the black community. But in the black community, the folks have been so programmed by the NAACP and what the NAACP says is right and what it says is wrong that even someone of this stature was uh, somewhat confused. And this was uh, Evie Hill, who has now gone to be with the Lord. He's a pastor of one of the largest, most uh, influential uh, black churches in South Central Los Angeles. And he was originally from Houston and got involved with the civil rights movement back in the 50s in Houston and then eventually went out to Los Angeles. But he was asked to come up and take up the collection. And as he was uh, introducing uh, the collection, which is a totally different story, he made reference to the fact, he said, you know, I have been giving $2,000 a year to the NAACP. And see, that's the thing, that even if you're uh, 
even if you're somewhat conservative, and he was, he was a Republican, and he was conservative, he still had to donate to the NAACP because of the ethnic pressure there. And so, uh, but he stood up there and he said, even though I give $2,000 a year to, for my NAACP membership, it does, it, they're not going to solve any of the problems we face. He said, these men up here, and these, most of the men on the platform were men who were teaching at the, uh, with the, with the WHW conference. He said, these men are the only ones who have the solution to our problems, and that's the Bible. And, but he was a, he's a rare light in, in the black community. That it is biblical thinking, biblical truth, with the emphasis on individual thought, individual responsibility, not on, uh, trying to create a, entitlement or uh, dependency upon uh, the national government. And so he was very clear, but unfortunately not too many people uh, have that message. He understood that freedom was a matter of the soul, and freedom is a matter of removing a slave mentality. Now, a slave mentality is a dependency mentality. It seeks to have someone else solve all of my problems, whether it's the master or whether it's the government or something else in society, but it's not up to me to solve my problems through my own uh, responsible actions and hard work. It's up to the government. The government has to come in and solve my health care problems. The government has to come in and solve uh, problems when uh, the economy turns south, when business opportunities aren't good. We have to have the government guarantee that I can uh, make as much money this year as I made last year, maybe make uh, more money than the last year, and that is nothing more than the mentality of slaves because you're looking to someone other than yourself to solve all of your problems. And if you are a Bible-believing Christian, then the Bible teaches that, uh, that we have freedom and that our lives are to be what we make of them based on how we use our volition and based on the decisions that we make. And so you have this contrast between the kind of herd dependency entitlement mentality that is characterizing the world more and more today, whether it's the so-called Christian socialism of Europe, whether it's the Marxism, which is still rampant in uh, many places in Russia, uh, the socialism there, even though they have a pseudo form of, of a capitalism, it's still dominated by uh, their, the old uh, KGB masters, and, and we're beginning to see more and more of the, of the Russians raise their ugly head uh, in their antagonism to, toward, uh, toward the U.S. And, and basically really just all but thumb their nose at our president when he was there on this, on this uh, recent trip. So the Bible emphasizes that one of the aspects of the Antichrist is he's going to have this ability to just sway people by his creation of these illusions. Uh, he's going to win them by his personality, by his rhetoric, and content, fact, and reason are not uh, in play, it is only going to be uh, the creation of this illusion. Uh, one of the things that a key principle we should we should always remember when we're talking about uh, what the Bible says about government is that the Bible does emphasize that government is an institution by God, and that government uh, in itself is good. I've heard some people say, "Well, you know, government's not 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 good. Government it, because it's instituted by God is good." But it's still 
operates on the basis of fallen human beings. And the more carnal, the more sinful those human beings are, the more they're going to pervert government uh, to their own ends. And that is the kind of thing that we see in Antiochus, and he is going to take on messianic dimensions. And that's exactly what has happened. We've seen this in American politics going back for at least a 100 years, is that the government tries to take on uh, this, this huge responsibility. They can solve all of these problems, but they can't because they're operating on a basic philosophy that denies sin, denies total depravity, and therefore thinks that they can solve problems which, uh, which they they can't. One principle we have to remember is that whenever the government is increasing spending and taxes to allegedly solve a problem, it's never about solving the problem. It, the entitlement, I mean, the uh, uh, the bailout bill back in um, uh, back in February wasn't about creating more jobs. It was about creating a pool of money that could be doled out to certain people to generate a greater uh, power base. The global warming bill isn't about solving a problem of global warming. Only a fool would think that man can change the weather. Of course, there's a lot of arrogant fools out there. I understand that. But uh, the government can't change the weather. They can't even predict the weather. Weatherman can't tell you what's going to happen on Friday, much less in a 100 years. And yet people fall all over themselves and think it's that old big lie technique that if, well, I can't tell them what the weather's going to be on Friday, but if I tell them that it's going to be too hot to uh, to live along the coastlines in another hundred years, they'll believe that, and, and people do. We have to realize as believers it's Jesus Christ that controls the earth. He's the one who holds everything together. And if we believe what the Bible says about prophecy and how things are going to end, and they will, it's not because the earth got too hot. It's because of totally other scenarios. And so uh, this all of this fear-mongering that goes on about uh, global warming, solving the problem, having the cap-and-trade tax, which is going to uh, just wipe out business in, in this country, is just uh, another way for people in power to generate more power for themselves and also to get a whole lot more money. I just wonder how much money Al Gore has made off the whole global warming thing in the last 10 years. So we see bailout money, TARP money is not about stimulating the economy. It's about feathering the nest of politicians, increasing their power uh, and so that they can give money to their cronies like Acorn in order to further their own uh, power base. Same thing is going to be true about the health care bill. These people aren't concerned about solving the health care problem. They're going to make it worse. We're going to destroy the finest health care system in the world, in the history of the world, and we're going to replace it with a health care system that nobody can access. And even if you could get the kind of health care we're, we're used to, you're not going to have the money to, uh, to be able to afford it. So you see there's a connection between power, personality, all of these different things, and that, of course, is going to lead to the problem of money. And that's the second aspect that we're going to see with, the, uh, with Antiochus is that the main problem he's got is the economy, that earlier uh, under his father, as, they, he try, as uh, his father Antiochus the Great tried to uh, stop the move, the march of Rome. Here, let me put the... Uh, I'll just put this map up here. As Rome is coming in from the west, 
And uh, Antiochus the Great went into Greece to try to stop the Romans. And he was defeated soundly on land and sea. And the result was that the Romans imposed upon him the peace of Actium, which is was as egregious in that time as the Versailles Treaty was at the end of World War One, And it put such a financial burden upon the upon the uh, Seleucid Empire that the last couple of years of his life and the whole uh, life of Antiochus was concerned about increasing their uh, the size of their empire so they could cr- increase their tax base, so they could increase their tax revenue, so they could pay off uh, the Romans and continue to live. And so we see the same kind of problems in the ancient world that we have today is is coming back. It all comes back to money. The third thing, so we're going to have this money problem and this huge economic issue that Antiochus is going to try to control. And then the third thing we're going to see is that he understands that it's a culture war. When he comes back from Rome and his time in Greece, he realizes that what he needs to do is to Hellenize his whole empire. He needs to Hellenize uh, the Jews. He needs to Hellenize, uh, make everyone think like a Greek. This is a culture war. We have the same thing going on today. We have the the modernists, the liberals, the atheists, secular humanists want to wipe out any influence of Christianity on the culture. And this culture war has been going on since the late uh, late 19th century. Antiochus understood that he, that he could not consolidate his empire, and control the area of Palestine unless he could wipe out the God of Israel and destroy their religious beliefs. And that, more more than anything else, is what is going to uh, typify uh, the Antichrist. So we'll come back next time and get into some of these details related to the history of that period and relate that then to the exegesis of the next few verses as we go from Uh, verse 9 down through verse uh, 14. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and to see that uh, your word is so accurate that prophecy was fulfilled to precise detail from the time of of Daniel, 200 years before these events with with Antiochus. And yet uh, these things also picture in a unique way the life and career of the Antichrist that is yet to come. And, Father, this just uh, reinforces the truthfulness, the veracity of your word, and that in other areas of life, when we go to your word and find it saying things and find your promises there, that we can trust in them knowing that this is absolute truth, that this book is not a book of human invention, but is a book that has come from you, a book that is divine in its origin. Father, we pray that as we continue to study these things, that you will use uh, what we study to give us greater wisdom Uh, And as we understand the trends in the past, we'll be able to see uh, more clearly what's going on in our own world today, but it'll also give us uh, some orientation to what will take place in the future as well. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.